Uh, I probably won't have time to get to all of them tonight. There were a lot of them. Uh, what's interesting about you know doing these question and answers is that there's a really nice range of questions and interests and topics. So it'll just cover a lot of different things. So the first question was, is there anything similar to Buddha nature in Theravada Buddhism? So that term, Buddha nature, one finds quite commonly uh, in Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism. The question is, is there something, anything similar to it in Theravada? I find the idea a helpful antidote to striving. You know, that is, that Buddha nature is already here. It's not something we have to get, but rather recognize and come back to. So what is there in the Theravada teachings that might have some similarity to this? The Buddha talked about the nature of mind in a particular way in the Pali texts. And while it may not be identical to what's meant in the Mahayana and Vajrayana teachings, it points to a quality of the mind that has the same effect uh, when we realize it in terms of helping us let go of striving. So this is from <coughs> uh, one of the suttas, where the Buddha says, luminous is this mind, or shining is this mind, but it is obscured by visiting defilements. An, un, an uninstructed ordinary person does not understand this as it really is, so for them there is no development of mind. Luminous is this mind, and it is freed from visiting defilements. An instructed noble disciple understands this as it really is, so for them there is development of mind. So what does this suggest? I mean, the Buddha is saying quite clearly that the mind is inherently luminous or radiant, which does not refer so much to the quality of light, what we might normally think of as luminosity, but rather refers to its knowing capacity. So the mind is luminous, it inherently knows, it's defiled by visiting defilements. So the Buddha is saying that the defilements in the mind are not inherent in the mind, They're, they are visitors. So that's helpful to know, as you know, we come face to face with different defilements or unskillful states. To know that they are visitors means they don't belong to us in any way. They come just as visitors when the conditions are there and they pass away. They're not inherent. So we can recognize and come back to this, we could call it the bare quality of knowing, the bare quality of that luminosity. And I had an interesting experience of this, which really helped uh, help me understand a way of being with things in a non-reactive uh, fashion. 
So this happened some years ago. And it was January. And I took a week vacation down in the Caribbean, one of the Caribbean islands. Beautiful. It's like almost all day long I was going around saying, pleasant, pleasant, (laughs) pleasant. The sights were pleasant, the scents were pleasant, the warm breeze on the skin was pleasant. It was just pleasant, 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 pleasant. A week of pleasant. Then I came back to Barry in the middle of January. (laughs) It was freezing cold, a particularly cold, freezing, icy wind. So walking outside and the wind would just be burning the skin. It was so cold, unpleasant, (laughs) unpleasant, unpleasant. The contrast was so strong that something became very apparent. And that is that the knowing mind was the same. The knowing mind was not affected by the pleasant or unpleasant. The mind simply had the nature to know. That was the function of the mind, to know. Sometimes it knows what's pleasant, sometimes it knows what's unpleasant, but the knowing quality was exactly the same. Whether it was down in the Caribbean or here in the freezing cold, so that was, it was just so striking to again realize this. So whether we call that Buddha nature or not, and again in the other traditions it may have a, an other specific meanings, but right within this tradition, the Theravada tradition, we can understand this fundamental nature of mind, the fundamental, fundamental nature of consciousness, of awareness, which simply knows. And we can always come back to that, remembering that the defilements, which may come, are visitors. They come and they may cloud the knowing from time to time, but they are not inherent to it. They are not intrinsic to it. They are not a part of it. So this can be a very helpful place to come back to again and again to rest simply in the knowing of what's arising, realizing that at times it will be pleasant, at times it will be unpleasant, but the knowing function is not affected by that. The knowing function is exactly the same. These were a few related questions which I put together. Could you talk a bit about the relationship between samatha and vipassana in your own practice experience? Also, I heard that Saira Upandita taught samatha to people after they already had some insight. Why was this? Deepama asked you at medit- Deepama asked you me uh, to sit for two days in meditation. I I tell this story sometimes. She looked at me and said, sit for two days. And she didn't mean a weekend retreat. She meant sit down and get up two days later. 
did you do it? <laughs> Please tell something about that. If someone wants to practice like that, what should they do? <laughs> Can you talk a little about the relationship of mindfulness and concentration? So this is this <coughs> question about these two different kinds of practice. So the first thing to uh, keep in mind is that the concentration, you know, is a translation often of the Pali word uh, samadhi, uh, takes different forms. Basically, samadhi, concentration, means uh, undistractedness or steadiness. So the example they use in the text is if a candle is burning in a place without any wind, the flame stays very steady. Right? It's not, the flame is not flickering. So that's what concentration means, steadiness of mind. The, mind's, the mind is not wavering, not flickering. <coughs> This can take different forms. In Vipassana practice, the kind of samadhi that's developed is called momentary concentration because we're developing a mind that's steady on changing objects. Right? So it could be on the breath and sensation and sound and thought. Moment after moment, the object may be changing but the samadhi can develop <clears throat> if it's steady moment to moment, if it's not getting distracted or lost in thought. And so the noting here is a good uh, check, really, of whether our mind is steady moment to moment. If we can acknowledge in, out, hearing, seeing, pressure, pressure. See, the objects are changing, but the mind is steady on each object in the moment. So this is called momentary concentration. It can get very strong. It, it can develop so that there is a very strong momentum of this concentration along with the mindfulness which is observing the object. So mindfulness is the observing power, concentration is the steadiness power. You know, when they're working together, can get very strong until there's a very uh, continuous momentum. And some of you may have experienced this in your Vipassana practice. There are times when this momentary samadhi is a strong momentum for it and can sit for hours. You know, ju just the mind is noting and noticing and observing moment after moment, very few distractions. We have built up this momentary samadhi in that case. The other kind of samadhi, uh, which is, uh, the practice is usually referred to as samatha practice, where we take a single object, and the mind is not on changing objects, it takes just a single object. It could be the breath, it could be a visual image, you know, in the tradition they talk of using casinas, colored discs, it could be the Brahma Viharas. This is a samatha practice where we focus just on a single object or theme. 
Here the goal is not so much seeing the momentariness of phenomena. Here the goal is staying steady on a single object, the end result being absorption in that experience, where one is not aware of anything else, one is totally absorbed. It's this kind of concentration, this one-pointed concentration, samatha, which is the basis, uh, as it's talked about, um, for all the different psychic powers that you read about. And you, know, you read the great yogis have mastered. And uh, one of the questions referred to Deepama, one of our teachers in India, who had extraordinary, extraordinary attainment and realization, both in Vipassana, you know, in the stages of awakening, and also in Samatha, in absorption. And she could sit for days. She once went, sat for three days in an absorbed state, you know, where the mind was not uh, wavering at all, was completely absorbed in the object. When she asked me if I could, not ask me, she, she asked me to sit for two days, I think she was thinking about herself and not me. <laughs> because my response was to laugh, as you just did. And all she said to that was, don't be lazy. I think there's a little more than laziness involved, although that might have been part of it. Uh, it takes a very strong development of that particular function of the mind. And it can be practiced. Uh, over my many years of practice, I've taken times, periods of time, um, when I would do just a samatha practice. So when I first went to India, I got interested in Buddhism when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. And just, just introduced to the a very simple practice, but I was very, very new to it. When I finished my time in the Peace Corps, I realized I wanted to continue, I needed a teacher. So I went back to India uh, after coming home for a couple of months. And after traveling around, I met Munindraji, my first Dharma teacher. And a couple of things happened which are of interest, perhaps, to this question of Vipassana and Samatha. So when I first sat down, <clears throat> and again, I was very new to the practice. This was pretty new. I didn't really know much about the practice or the teachings. So when I first sat down, <clears throat> I just had, <clears throat> had a little bit of light appear in my mind. So Munindraji, having just trained Deepama, in Burma, thought, oh, here's, here's another yogi. We'll have him do samatha practice. And so he said, okay, concentrate on the light. So I started practicing on just seeing the light. Light, light, light. I drove myself crazy. I was very new to the practice. I really had no idea about how to work with anything didn't know about the hindrances. All I knew, oh, there's this little bit of light, I'm supposed to focus on it. And there was so much striving and so much struggle and so much distress, unlike Deepama, <laughs> who 
so after not a long time, Manindraji realized this is not the right practice for me to be doing at this time. Right? So he said, okay, let's just go back to the Vipassana, you know, the rising, falling, and the instructions uh, that you're all familiar with. It was very helpful, because then instead of struggling, you know, to, to be with just this one object and not knowing what to do about everything else that arose, so I settled back and I relaxed, and so then I was just with the breath and different sensations and thoughts, but still it was very difficult. There may be some of you who have a very natural ability for samadhi. There are some people like that who kind of sit down and their minds are naturally concentrated. And the practice is easier when people have already developed this. For me, I had zero concentration. I had studied philosophy in college. My mind loved to think. And so when I sat, when I first began meditation, I would just sit and think for an hour and enjoyed it. You know, this is a very nice way to spend an hour. It took, it took a lot of perseverance just to keep going, you know, because it was difficult when the mind is not concentrated, you know, the body can get uncomfortable and <clears throat> the mind can get restless and all the hindrances. But I was very committed, you know, I just kept doing it and kept doing it. But at some point <clears throat> I realized that, okay, the, my, the concentration factor is pretty weak, you know. So I asked Manindraji to teach me metta. Because metta, the Brahma Viharas, are a samatha practice, they're a concentration practice, <clears throat> as well as developing those beautiful qualities. And I felt that I could use both, that it would be good to develop the concentration as well as strengthen the metta. So I did, <clears throat> that was the first time I did a concentration practice, I did it for about six weeks in Bodh Gaya. And conditions were not great there, it was quite noisy and so there were not ideal conditions for concentration practice, but uh, I did it anyway. And it turned out to be very, very helpful. After a few weeks of doing the intensive metta, which you know, most of you are familiar with, it's just the repetition of the phrases and directing it towards an image and rousing the feeling. It's, al it's almost like uh, a mantra of loving-kindness, you know, which we're repeating again and again. It was in doing the metta, it was doing that first time of a samatha practice that my mind became... <clears throat> somewhat concentrated. And I remember thinking, first, just filled with a lot of happiness. You know, I've been struggling for so long. And finally, uh, the mind settled and became concentrated and easeful. And I remember thinking at that time, oh, this is why people like to meditate. Because before that, I was very committed to it. I knew it was important, but I was, it wasn't fun. You know, there was a lot of struggle. But once the mind developed some degree of concentration, again, this is not like the concentration of Deepama, 
but it was enough to stabilize the mind, to make the mind and the concentration and the mindfulness more effortless. So this is how samatha and vipassana can work together. You know, at different times, one or another may be helpful. In the very beginning, I really needed to do the vipassana, to just learn about what was going on. After some time, it became possible to actually do the samatha in a way that was useful. And then that really helped the vipassana when I went back to it. So they're not, they're not at all in any way whatsoever opposing practices. They're, they're different practices, but they support each other. And so it's helpful just either in your own experience or working with a teacher, just to see at a particular time uh, what, what might be helpful. Um, in the end, you know, this is, this is a long path we're on to full awakening. Even though from the perspective of Buddha nature, we're already here. As one Tibetan teacher said, it's, this is something like this, you're already perfect, but there's much to improve. <laughs> so it's kind of like that. We can recognize the essential nature of the knowing mind, the essential nature of awareness. And still these qualities have to be cultivated so we actually are living them and realizing them and actualizing them. So one practice is metta. Uh, and we'll get benefits from it. How does it benefit others who are receiving the metta? <coughs> you know, so that's a question. We may be, we may be here <coughs> radiating loving thought and feeling. We know that it can benefit us. Does it really benefit anybody else? Of course, the power of the benefit will be proportional to the strength of the metta, which is informed by the, by the strength of the concentration. So as you may know the very uh, classic story of the Buddha, you know, when his evil cousin Devadatta sent a mad elephant charging down a narrow lane thinking that the Buddha would either be killed or run away, and so discredited, because Devadatta wanted to kind of take over the Sangha. And as the story goes, this charging mad elephant, and they're big, you know, come charging at him. And as the story goes, the Buddha's just radiating metta towards the elephant, and the elephant slows down. And just before the Buddha, it said it bows down in front of the Buddha pacified, the elephants are pacified by the power of the Buddha's loving kindness. Okay, so that's metta at its peak, right? It's probably best not to <laughs> test our own metta in that kind of situation right away. <laughs> you know, we should kind of test it slowly. But the benefit of other, on others 
we can see in a much more ordinary way. And I'll illustrate it by talking of its opposite first. If you walk into a room, or maybe you're just with somebody who's very angry, do you feel that? Can't you feel the anger and, you know, the energy is tense, you know, and maybe we get tense in response to it. and, And then what happens when you walk into a room or you're with somebody who is just very loving? and very friendly and warm. Don't you feel that? Now, this, is not, this is not magical and it's not mystical. When we're with somebody like that, we feel warm and loving and friendly. So it has a very immediate effect on the people around us. The more loving we are, the kinder we are, the friendlier we are. It's like it affects its... It's, it's a very immediate effect on the people we meet. It was very interesting when we would visit Deepama in Calcutta. She lived just in a very, very poor surroundings, um, just in two rooms with her daughter and grandson and Certainly by, by you know, Western standards, very, very poor. But we would go up into her room, and it was as if the room were just filled with light. And in Indian fashion, you know, we'd come in, and we'd kind of bow, and she'd do kind of that Indian blessing of running her hands over our heads and shoulders. And we would walk totally blissed out, you know. What was that from? It was from the power of her metta. You know, there was just so much love coming that it was tangible. We could feel it. It was so heart-opening and uplifting. So it definitely has an impact, whether on the more ordinary level, whether on a special level, when people have it very well developed. In sitting meditation, When aware of some or many mind states appearing and disappearing, sometimes quickly, it was noted that the mind was indifferent to these mind states. But upon investigation by asking the question, what are these mind states, it seemed that the mind did not understand or recognize them, and thus unable to react. In actuality, the mind was in confusion about the mind states. The mind seems unclear most of the time these days. Any suggestions? I think there's an interesting uh, distinction here between um, being confused or deluded and not necessarily being able to name precisely what a mind state or emotion is. So especially, you know, when we're sitting and different moods or mind states are appearing and disappearing, and especially if they're coming somewhat quickly, and we're not particularly caught in them. 
You know, we're not identified with them. We know something's there. It's like a cloud passing through. We may not know exactly, you know, is it sadness? Is it unhappiness? Is it sorrow? You could say, is it happiness? Is it excitement? Is it... We may not know. We may not have the exact word for it. That doesn't matter if we can just be sitting and aware that, yeah, there's this mind state present, don't know exactly what it is, but we're observing it. You know, it just comes and goes, and we're not getting caught in it. We're not becoming identified with it. In that case, the precise recognition is not necessary. Because the whole point of the recognition and the precision is to enable us to see so that we are not identifying, so that we're not caught. Is this clear? Something's there, we don't quite know what it is, but it's just passing through. It's not a problem. We're just, we're just there. It becomes more important to investigate more precisely when it feels that we're caught in this emotion or we're caught in this mind state. You know, where we may be lost in a story around it or it feels like it's really stuck within it. Then precision and investigation of what it is can be very helpful. So I'll give you an example from my experience. Um, but there are many. There are many different examples and I'm sure you've had your own. So this goes back many years. But at one time I was just meditating and I was just feeling, you know, waves and waves and waves of sadness. Just, you know, it was just this very strong feeling. And I'm noting sadness, 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 sadness. But it just felt, it felt locked in and I felt locked into it. And I felt really identified with it. So that... The fact that I was so stuck, that aroused my interest. And so what, what's going on here? Why am I so caught? So I just kept looking more carefully at the emotion itself. What is this? And I saw that it wasn't sadness. It was unhappiness. Now these two emotions, they're close, but they're really different. They have very different flavors. As soon as I saw, oh yeah, this is unhappiness, that was as if the mind could become aligned with what was actually there instead of misperceiving, you know, and being slightly out of alignment. When I could see exactly what, oh, this is unhappiness, the alignment, the, the correct perception allowed me to be accepting of it. And that was the key. When I was misperceiving it, the acceptance wasn't possible because I wasn't seeing clearly what it was. Is this clear? So it was quite remarkable because it was just in that moment of, oh, getting an alignment, oh, unhappiness, then I could just, oh, unhappy, unhappy, unhappy. And then 
you know, it washed through like emotions will. So in that kind of situation, where we're caught or stuck, that's when precision can be really helpful. I'll give you another example. This happened in Burma. I was sitting, and as for those of you who have practiced in Asia, uh, it's not uncommon for it to be incredibly noisy. And this time in Burma, right outside my room, they were doing construction and they were just straightening these steel rebars. So they were clanging metal on metal just all day long. You know. So my mind went through all kinds of things. You know, here I come to Burma to get enlightened and they're making all this noise. <laughs> so a lot of distress. But there was nothing to do about it. You know, the, this was really ungovernable. You know, it was completely outside of my control. So I was suffering a lot for quite a while. But then, again, it just, you know, we can become interested in why the mind is suffering. What, what's going on that's causing the suffering? And when I finally realized that it wasn't the sound, that's not what was making me suffer, I saw that my mind was complaining. It was just complaining mind. Complaining a lot. But it was so interesting. As soon as I could recognize, oh, that's what's happening. Complaining mind. The whole thing. Oh, complaining, complaining, complaining. It just became another mind state. The sound was fine. The sound was just the sound. So it's just another example of times when we're stuck, precision about what's happening can be helpful. When we're not stuck, when it's all part of a flow, the precision is less important in terms of naming specifically what it is. One day on this retreat, I got up later than normal. When I was sleeping, someone called, wake up, now nearly 4.30. I opened my eyes, looked at the clock, 4.20. The question is, who called me? <laughs> my mind or a deva? <clears throat> if my mind called, how can the mind know the time so correctly? If deva called me, it is extremely interesting because deva here can speak Vietnamese. <clears throat> I like that question just because it might have been a deva, <laughs> a Vietnamese speaking deva. <clears throat> There's a lot of mystery to the mind. You know, the mind has capacity, unimaginable, unimaginable capacities. You know, it, it's this huge, huge mystery of what the mind is and how it functions and what it can do. And it's, it's precisely this uh, aspect that has kept me so interested for 50 years. You know, it's just because our practice just goes, keeps on going deeper and exploring just the nature of this mind, of consciousness, of awareness. It can do so many things. And of course, the stories of Deepama are extraordinary. 
of what the mind can do. But even in more ordinary ways, it's, it's quite common. You know, if very often people report if they go to sleep with an intention to get up at a certain hour, the mind awakes at that time. You know, just the power of the intention in the mind. We can see this in uh, some of the practice. You know, if when the mind gets or has the ability to enter into certain concentrated states, <coughs> we can make resolutions. You know, may this and this arise. The mind just does it. May I enter this state? The mind does it. May I come out of this state? May I last? May I be in it for ten minutes, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes? The mind is this amazingly responsive mystery. One of the <coughs> different teachers teach metta in different ways. <coughs> You know, so there are, there are many styles of doing metta practice. When we studied with Saira Upandita, the way he teaches it is to, to do the metta phrases, you know, in the visualization and arouse the feeling. And then over time, to begin to make resolutions, first for the jhanic factors. That is, there are certain five factors of mind that comprise the first jhana. Right? And so in Pali, there are vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, ekkakata. That's initial application, sustained application, rapture, happiness, one-pointedness. And so the way he would teach is, after we had gotten into the momentum of the practice, he would say, well, make a resolution for these, factor, these jhanic factors to arise. Okay, may vitaka arise, may it become strong, may I experience it clearly. And then something would happen. Maybe not the first time, and sometimes it took a while for these resolutions uh, to start working, but at a certain point they do. So one of the most interesting things about the mind, and again this goes to the comment about the deva speaking Vietnamese. So I was teaching metta to a Western student, an American student, I gave, I gave her these instructions and to make these resolutions in Pali, maybe Taka arise, maybe Chara arise. She didn't speak Pali and she did not know the meaning of the words. And yet when she made the resolution, the same experiences happened as when anybody else made the resolution knowing the meaning of the words. So what's that about? You know, maybe Pali is the inherent language of the nature of mind. <laughs> it's just a mystery, you know, and there are a lot of mysteries. Uh, and in some way, what we're all doing, you know, in the day-to-day -day practice, which at times can feel, you know, difficult or struggling or you know, the many ups and downs, which everybody experiences. But what we're really doing is developing the tools and the strengths to investigate this mind.
and to investigate it on deeper and deeper levels. You know, with, with all of this mysterious things that it can do, and to see more and more clearly, most fundamentally, you know, what is the cause of suffering? And how can I come to the end of it? So this is something that we're actually doing by our observation. And we just need to develop the tools of mindfulness, of concentration, of you know, wise effort, all the things you're familiar with. Okay, so this was uh, an interesting question. What's the difference between observing lobha and dosa, greed and hatred, in jitunupasana, that is mindfulness of the mind, which is the third foundation of mindfulness? You know, in the Satipatthana Sutta, there's mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind, and then mindfulness of dhammas, which include a whole range of things. So in mindfulness of the mind, the third foundation, the Buddha talks about being mindful of when greed is present, when it's not present, when anger or hatred is present, when it's not present. So the question is, what's the difference between that and when the Buddha talks about being mindful of greed and hatred in the fourth foundation, Dhamma is under hindrances? Because they're the same there are many of the same qualities. Why are they repeated? Or is there a difference you know, in how we're practicing? So this may seem a little theoretical you know, based on the sutta, but it does point to some interesting practice implications. In the third foundation of mindfulness, the instruction is very simple. It simply says, be mindful when greed is present, when it's not present. Be mindful when hatred or anger is present, when it's not present. When delusion is present or not present, and then a few other states. So it's very simple. It's just to be aware, is this present in the mind or not present? So there are a couple of interesting points in this. One is something that we often overlook and which would be very helpful to incorporate in our practice. Usually, we give emphasis to when these states are present. Oh, be mindful of when there's greed or desire in the mind. Be mindful when there's anger or hatred in the mind. So we pick it up and we note it. But we don't often pay attention to those times when it's not present. Right? We're, not, we don't, we're not recognizing those times, oh, at this time there is no desire in the mind. At this time there's no aversion in the mind. But the Buddha is saying, pay attention to both. So this would be interesting to remember to do from time to time. Because then first it will build confidence. You know, we're so used to seeing and being with the hindrances and the defilements, very often the mind can just 
either get discouraged or self-judgment, oh, my mind is so filled with these defilements. And, but it's not. Those, those defilements, those galaxies are not there all the time. They're there at times, and then they're not there. When we pay attention or recognize, oh yes, now the mind is free of those defilements. There's no desire present, no anger present. We're actually getting a certain taste of freedom. We're experiencing the mind free of defilements at that time. So we, we learn to recognize it, which is helpful because then we can come back to it more easily, and it builds confidence in us. It says, oh yes, you know, the, mind, the mind's not so bad after all. It has a lot of times when it's wholesome, when it's free. So that's one aspect that I feel is implied in this third foundation. Know when these things are present, when they're not present. It also highlights the importance of just discerning the difference between skillful and unskillful mind states. In normal, <laughs> normal people who do not come on retreat, <laughs> you know, just all those normal people out there, I think, I think it's very rare for people to be watching their minds carefully enough to actually discern what are wholesome mind states, what are unwholesome mind states. You know, this is not the usual way people live in the world. And in fact, sometimes it's the opposite. So I'll, I'll just give you one example. One year I was teaching at a uh, Trappist monastery, or Benedictine monastery in uh, Snowmass, Colorado. And it was quite a liberal monastery. They invited you know, different Buddhist teachers to come and teach. So I was, they invited me to come and teach metta. Just before I came, there was some, I don't know, I didn't exactly know what they were teaching, but it was more therapeutic-minded, you know, than psycholo psych psychologically oriented, rather than uh, meditatively. And basically the message of whoever it was that was teaching was honor your anger, right? And from a therapeutic psychological point of view, one could understand what's meant by it. But it's very easy, honor your anger, it's very easy to kind of fall into the understanding that somehow this is good. Anger is good and we should, because it's arising within us, and we should honor it. I think what's really meant, at least from a Buddhist perspective, we can honor the fact that it has arisen. Right? And so we can ignore, yes, it's here, so not you know, deny it or avoid it or push it down. Or, so in that sense, we can honor the fact of it being there in the present moment. But that's very different than honoring the anger as being some wholesome state. Do you, do you see the difference? So I, the Buddha and in the teachings, 
there's a lot of emphasis on this wise discernment of skillful and unskillful, of wholesome and unwholesome, in terms of the different mind states that arise. And this is the foundation, really. This is the whole ethical foundation of our practice. Unskillful mind states lead to suffering for ourselves and others. Wholesome mind states lead to happiness for ourselves and others. So it's very pragmatic. It's not some, you know, it's, it's not coming down from on high, you know, telling us what's what. We should see for ourselves and we should make this discernment in our minds. We should be careful enough in our observation as we go through these different states, honoring whatever it is that's arising and the fact that it has arisen, but then with discernment. Oh, is this wholesome? Is this unwholesome? Right? And we can feel that. We can, we can see that for ourselves. So all of that is in this third foundation of mindfulness. In the fourth foundation, where the Buddha is talking, be with this recognizing these states as hindrances, that's the category. You know, in the fourth foundation. So here the Buddha is, uh, there's more specific instructions. And I just, I just thought I would read the specific instruction. And I think you're very familiar with this. So the, the Buddha asks, and how does one, in regard to dhammas, abide contemplating these dhammas in terms of the five hindrances? So, there are three steps, and I, I condense them a bit. So first, in dealing with them as a hindrance, know when a hindrance is present and when it's not present. So that's the same. But then, know the conditions that lead to the arising of the hindrance. See? So that's something more than was said earlier. It's not just knowing whether it's present or unpresent, but investigate what leads, what are the conditions that lead to the arising of it? And what are the conditions that lead to the removal of it? But you see, there's a little more investigation here because in this foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha is not just naming these mind states, he's saying these mind states are hindrances. They hinder our practice. And so we need to investigate them a little further. Are they present or not? What are the conditions leading to them and removing them? and know the conditions that prevent a future arising. So this, this gets very interesting, and you know, we have so many opportunities to practice this. So just as an exercise, you know, while you're here, and your time here is so precious because, as I've said many times, you're all just in a laboratory of awareness. You know, that's what, all you have to do, your only job, beside pot washing. <laughs> and even in pot washing, 
Your only job is to be aware, to be watching. Okay, a hint desire arises or aversion arises. What was the cause of that? Was that because I saw something and I wasn't mindful of seeing? So we investigate. I had such a liberating example of this when I was on retreat years ago. Many of you probably have heard me tell this story because it was so powerful for me. I noticed being on retreat that every time I walked into the dining room for meals, my mind would have a comment about almost everybody. You know, some kind of judgment. I liked what they were wearing, I didn't like what they were wearing. They were moving too quickly, they were moving too slowly. They took too much food, they didn't take enough food. It didn't matter, it was ridiculous. But the mind just kept doing it, just a comment about everyone. So at a certain point, (laughs) come on mind, (laughs) why are you keeping on doing this? Because it it was clearly so ridiculous. And then I realized all of those thoughts, all of those, you know, mildly aversive thoughts were all happening based on eye contact, visual. I was seeing someone and I was not being mindful that I was seeing. Seeing, perception of the person leading to all kinds of proliferation of thought, all these judgments. So what I started doing, I would walk into the dining room and from the moment I walked in, all I would note is seeing. Just seeing, 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 online in food, seeing, taking the food, seeing, taking the food. It was amazing. In that simple note and being mindful of seeing, all of those judgments and comments disappeared. So this is, this is the kind of investigation we can be doing, and the Buddha is suggesting we do in this foundation of mindfulness. What's the cause of the hindrances to arise? How can they be removed? You know, and how can we avoid them arising in the future? So of course we can do this with all of the sense doors. You know, maybe, maybe you have a hindrance of aversion that comes... And you notice, you're watching it, and every time you notice that it's arising because of a particular thought. Maybe one thought comes in the mind, and then there's a whole story which causes aversion to arise. Well, if you're investigating the cause of the arising, of the aversion, then you say, oh, it's that thought. If I can be mindful of that thought arising, Oh, thinking, thinking, it's just a thought. The hindrance doesn't arise. Do you see the power of this? This is what the Buddha is talking about in this fourth foundation of mindfulness. Not only knowing whether it's present or not present, but doing a further investigation. Can I see the cause? Can I see how to remove it? Can I see how to prevent it? And in this way, we really develop a mind of much greater ease we really find a place of greater happiness.
That seems like it might be a good place. There are many more questions. Uh, but as you can see, they're really, really good, good practice questions. Um, so let's just sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.